Good morning. If you uh, have your Bibles with you, let me invite you to open me to the book of Romans, chapter 16. And Drew, if you could turn me down just a little bit. Romans chapter 16, verse 3 is where we will begin uh, this morning. And uh, we are uh, three sermons away from being complete uh, with our study in the book of Romans. Uh, We have been in the midst of this study. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been in the midst of this for two and a half years. Um, And we have been journeying through this all-important letter in the New Testament uh, because it is one of the clearest presentations of what we believe as Christians. This letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome thoroughly details what sin is, what sin deserves, and how we sinners can be saved. This letter thoroughly details that God sent Jesus to live the life we could not live and die the death we deserve to die, to rise again on the third day to give us life we could never earn for ourselves. He gifts us with righteousness that is not our own. And this letter also describes what happens to the person who believes how good that message really is. This, this letter has articulated that the good news of Jesus is not just that you will be forgiven when you die, but that you will be transformed when you believe. God changes those who put faith in Jesus by the power of the Spirit, and then God uses that changed person, begins to work in them to change them progressively as they walk with Him, and then God sends them on a mission to tell others about how good the good news is that changed them. We saw in Paul, uh, in Romans chapter 15, that he makes it his ambition to preach the good news of Jesus, where Christ had not yet been named. But now, where we're at in the story is Romans chapter 16 is, it's the final greetings of a letter. I mean, the Apostle Paul is writing to real people in who, who really believed the message and were really changed 2,000 years ago. And in a section of Scripture that is kind of obscure and is often overlooked, what we find in this list of names is an awesome privilege. We have the awesome privilege of, of like a window being opened to us to look through 2,000 years of history at very real people who really were changed by the gospel that Paul preached. Normal individuals, many of them with day jobs, yet their names are preserved in God's book 2,000 years later for us to read about them in St. Rose, Louisiana this morning. And so we turn our attention this morning to to verses 3 through 16, and we're going to read and then pray for God to help us to learn Uh, from these people and from how God has preserved their witness uh, for us to read. So I'm going to read, and many of these names, um, I'm just going to say with confidence, because you don't know how to pronounce them either. So I'm just going to do the best that I can, and uh, you bear with me if if I stumble over a couple of them. 
verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apeonitus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelitus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachius. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those who work in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. And also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncretus and Phlegon, Hermes and Patrobus and Hermas and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julian, Nerus and his sister and Olympus and all saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It's pre-COVID rules in the first century. All the churches of Christ greet you. So let's pray and ask that God would help us to learn from this text. Lord, thank you so much for um, obscure passages of Scripture that you have preserved for our edification. Um, Thank you for the treasures that are here, the, the truth that is here. And Father, we pray that you would use these words that you've preserved for many centuries to right now, Stir the believers in this room to worship you. Stir them to just thanksgiving over the kind of work that you do in their lives and around them. Father, we pray that you would use this text to convict of sin and of apathy. And Father, we pray you'd use this scripture to motivate, to participate in the mission. So God, we pray you would do all these miracles uh, by the power of your spirit, that as I speak, Father, I just pray um, that this would be a moment of worship, even for me personally, that I would not um, have to think about what I'm saying next, but that you, by the spirit, would just speak through me, and that I might just rejoice over the truths that we see here. We pray for all these miracles, by your grace and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. So the first question that came to my mind uh, with approaching uh, Romans 16, beside how in the world do you preach this, is how does Paul know these people? How does Paul know all these people to greet them and to know details about them? Because we've learned from the book of Romans already that Paul's not actually been to Rome yet. 
I mean, part of the aim of, of writing the letter and sending it uh, by the hand of Phoebe that we saw last week is that Paul's in, intending for Phoebe to go ahead of him uh, to take this letter, for them to see what Paul is all about, to understand his theology, uh, to understand uh, the, what the gospel means, and then to prepare themselves to help Paul get from Rome to Spain, where there is no church, where people have not heard of Jesus yet. And so Paul's not been to the city of Rome yet. So the first question is, well, if you've not been there yet, according to earlier in the letter, how do you know all these people who are laboring in the church in Rome? And uh, it did not take long for me to, to sort of get some answers to that question because the answers really come in the first two names of the list that we see in verse 3, Prisca and Aquila. We can study their background and we get a clue to how and why Paul knows so many of the people that are here. See, Paul's letters have a historical context. So if you're new to reading the New Testament or you're new to reading the Bible, um, uh, the Bible has different books that have different genres. We're currently reading a letter written by one of the apostles who saw the resurrected Jesus and was given authority to speak on his behalf. We're reading a letter, but there are other books in the New Testament that tell the story. They are narratives. So the book of Acts is a historical narrative that tells the story about all the places that Paul went to start churches and the church grew and uh, Jesus's, uh, Jesus resurrects, ascends to the Father, sends the Holy Spirit, and the Christianity begins to grow. So letters are being written, which one we're reading, in the context of the story of the book of Acts. So sometimes you can fill in the gaps when you see something in a letter that you're like, okay, where does this person come from? by looking back at the book of Acts and seeing uh, their story come to place. So, so Priscilla and Aquila, or Prisca and Aquila, don't let that uh, uh, get you off track. Prisca and Priscilla is the same person. It's just a shorter version of her name. So Prisca and Aquila uh, show up in Acts chapter 18. All right, so direct your eyes to the screen or to your Bible, and I want you to see where their name shows up as we're kind of trying to fill in the picture here. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. Paul went to see them, and because he was the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So Acts 18 shed some light to who these people were. Priscilla and Aquila are a married couple who were displaced from their home in Rome. So apparently due to a historical conflict in AD 49, the Roman emperor set, kicks out all of the Jewish people from the capital city, displaces them from their home, and they're scattered across the Roman Empire. And, and Priscilla and Aquila land in the city of Corinth, about a thousand miles away from the capital city of Rome, and there they meet the Apostle Paul, who just happens to do the same thing that they do. They are both tent makers, and they invite the Apostle Paul into their home to live with him, live with them. So, so here, due to this relationship with Paul, they're discipled, they grow in the Lord, and they become some of his most trusted co-laborers, in the mission of getting the gospel of Jesus to the nations. Um, so, so Paul 
plants a church in Corinth, helps lead them uh, for some time, and then leaves to go to Ephesus to start another church, and they go with him. They pick up and move, and they go to Ephesus to plant a new church. Acts chapter 18, verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer, and they took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Prisca and Aquila. So they've left with him to go down to Ephesus. Not only do they travel to Ephesus, but we find out later in Acts 18 that they are major disciple makers. Uh, they, they help disciple someone who actually becomes a major leader in the church later on. Acts chapter 18 verse 24 tells us a little, little story. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So, so this married couple, here's this guy, like, man, that guy's got a lot of potential, but he's missing some things about the message of Jesus. So they say, hey, come over to our house for a little bit, and let's, let's, let's talk a little bit. And they, they help him fill in some gaps in his theology that he was missing as he was teaching. This guy goes on to be a, a big deal in the growth of the church later in Corinth. Paul writes back to Corinth from Ephesus, and listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. And listen to who he includes. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Okay, so fast forward to the writing of the book of Romans, and apparently the edict has been lifted, and Jews are now allowed to return to the capital city and Priscilla and Aquila have gone home. And guess what they've done in going home? They've gotten a house and opened their home to have yet another church start in their home. And Paul greets them in verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their home, their house. We could spend an entire sermon learning from just Prisca and Aquila and how they lived their lives. Utilizing a tent-making business to plant churches in three different cities a power couple for the gospel of Christ. But what I want to do this morning, and we'll talk more about them as we go, but what I want to do is I want you to see three truths this morning that are true of Prisca and Aquila and that are true of everybody listed in this greeting and that should be true of every Christian person in this room. So three truths beginning with truth number one. God gives us new identities in Christ. For 15 chapters, Paul has unfolded for us the beauty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ to save people. And even as he lists individual names who, who are laboring in the city of Rome, 
he continuously reminds us that these people, the thing that makes them special, is their new relationship with Jesus Christ. Something cataclysmic has happened in these people's lives to where their very sense of identity and the very way of identifying them is by identifying them as people who are in the Lord Jesus. So just listen to how all the theology from the past 15 chapters just flavors the way he even speaks about people. Look at Romans chapter 16 and just skim it with me. So, so verse 3, uh, a Greek Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers, in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, he says, uh, Greet my beloved Apeanetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. How amazing is it that we have the record of the first dude who had his life changed by the message of Jesus that has changed our lives. The first one in Asia. Later down at the end of verse 17, he speaks of those who were in Christ before me. Verse 8, greet Ampeliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Verse 9, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Verse 10, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord. Again, Later in the verse, who has worked hard in the Lord. Verse 13, greet Rufus chosen in the Lord. Or verse 15, all the saints who are with them. Paul makes crystal clear in this text that the most significant thing about these individuals is their relationship with Jesus. And the true foundation of their friendships is their common identity as receivers of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. These were real people who at one time in their life did not know God, did not know forgiveness, did not know assurance had no hope for a life to come. At one time, these people existed under the full weight of God's condemnation for their sins against Him. But now, they are in Christ Jesus. Not only forgiven, but meaningfully, experientially, positionally, in fellowship with the Lord Jesus so much that it has changed their very sense of identity. Christian, the most defining thing about us happened when we put faith in Jesus and we were united with him. This means that God presently, right now, loves us Christians, loves us with the same love that he has had for Jesus from eternity past. Our unity with Jesus means that level of love that God has for us. This means that God presently empowers us with the Spirit of Christ to serve Him in the present. We are not alone. We are tied in a meaningful way to Jesus. Romans 8, 9, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. 
Unity with Christ is what we have been promised. Paul greets Apollos as one who is approved in Christ. But that's not just true of him. That is true of everyone in this room. You are affirmed, approved, and welcomed into relationship with God. All of us have this natural need to find our identity in something, to find something that makes us unique, something that makes us valuable, something that makes us precious to someone. And it starts at an early age. I, I, I remember as a middle schooler, I remember I, I, there really was this moment as a middle schooler uh, and, uh, you know, I was on, on dial-up, you know, internet, and, and, like, you know, you had, like, MSN Messenger back then, and, you know, doing the thing, and, and, and I remember um, seeing people's profile names and things that they were about, and I remember thinking as a middle schooler, what are people going to know me for or as? What's going to be my thing, you know? And I remember as a middle schooler saying, I need something to make me me, to make me unique, to make me better than other people. And I remember consciously deciding, I think soccer is going to be my thing. I wasn't that great at it, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to get great at it, and that's going to be my thing. I'll wear clothes that have soccer stuff on it. I'll become a fan, and I'll get good at it. And that will be where I, I, I pull identity to satisfy this need in me for approval. And it failed <laughs> to provide what I thought that it might provide. Because the only thing that provides that sense of approval that my soul longs for is the approval that is found in Christ Jesus, who lived perfectly on my behalf and tied himself to me in love so that God looks at me and approves of me with the same level of ferocity, the same level of severity and, and passion that he approves of the Son, that he's been approving from eternity past. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul greets Rufus as one who is chosen in the Lord. How many of us want to be chosen Desired. God chose to enter into a relationship with you, Christian. He did so by his free will, and you didn't force his hand. You didn't convince him to do something he didn't want to do. He chose to bring you into fellowship with him through your faith in Christ. Those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. What shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? Paul greets the saints, the holy ones, but that's not just the select few in Romans 16, that is all who believe in Jesus. We have become the holy ones of God by the virtue of Jesus's holiness and not our, our own. Our unholiness covered by his holiness and us being transformed to walk in his holiness. These people were real people who found a new identity in relationship with Jesus Christ. But this new identity, it does more than just address our insecurities. It does more than just uh, uh, provide eternal life in the end. New identity calls us to a new vocation. You see, with new identity comes new mission. Uh, I, 
I think back to my middle school self, and when I decided I was going to try to find identity in this particular sport, the result was that I had a new purpose. I had a new vocation. I had a new way to spend my afternoons. I needed to practice. (laughs) It resulted in hours upon hours upon hours on a little concrete patio with a ball at my feet, juggling it in the air in hopes that my new mission would only fulfill the new identity I was seeking. Identity always leads to mission. And Paul identifies each of these individuals according to their connection to Jesus, but then he commends them for how this new connection of Jesus has changed what they've seen themselves or what they've considered to be the work God has called them to do. Look again at Romans 16 with me and notice the repeated theme. Notice the the language of work. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers. Verse 6, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Verse 9, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Truth number two, God gives us gospel work to do. Paul does not just commend these brothers and sisters for their work, but he commends some of them for their hard work. Uh, it is an amazing thing. And he's like, oh yeah, and greet Mary, for she has been killing it for y'all. <laughs> she's, she's working hard for y'all. And as I looked at the original language uh, in this particular text, there's two Greek words that are used, one for work and then one for hard. But when you look at the original language, that first word for worked carries with it already the meaning of labor, of giving effort, of being tired. It can be translated as growing weary, losing heart, or being emotionally fatigued and discouraged. So that one word by itself is already like pouring yourself out language. And then the second word that he uses simply means abundant or great amount. So Paul's point is clear. You are are laboring to the point of exhaustion a lot. (laughs) You are giving yourselves to something. You are sacrificially striving for something. But, But the question is, okay, to what? What is the work that these people are giving themselves to? It doesn't tell us here, but we can only assume that these individuals are giving themselves to what Paul defines as the work of the ministry earlier in chapter 15. In Romans 15, verse 17, this is what Paul says. He says, in Christ Jesus then... I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles or the nations to obedience by word and deed. The work that he, Paul saw himself on and all others on is bringing the peoples into that new relationship with Jesus, bringing the peoples into obedience by word and deed. The work is gospel work. It's getting the gospel into the hearts and minds of people. And they've apparently worked hard at this. And, and, and we, we have to pause and notice here that the names on list, this list are not apostles. They are not all pastors. They are everyday people with everyday jobs. And, and we don't know the backstory of every individual on this list, but we know at least Prisca and Aquila's. According to Acts 18, a married couple, 
working together to run a lucrative tent building business that allowed them to build, to build or to buy bigger houses so that they could start churches in those houses in Corinth, Ephesus, and Rome. So wherever the Lord took them, they took the business, they bought a house, and they planted a church. This married couple worked hard at tent building. For the glory of God. They recognize that there is no such thing as a secular and sacred divide. They recognize that when they became a Christian to serve Jesus as both Savior and Lord, that He became Lord of everything, including where you live, where you work, and how you use your resources for the glory of God. And I suppose... That each individual on this list fit in the missional movement in beautifully unique ways. We we do not know if Mary was a stay-at-home mom, or if Urbanus worked in the market, or if Persis was a brick mason. But what we know is that these individual Christians were known for pouring themselves out in the work of the Lord through whatever their vocation was. And they contributed to the planting of churches in one of the most influential yet hostile cities in the world. And their names were preserved in this book for us to read them 2,000 years later. So let me pause real quick and just ask you a question. If Paul were writing a letter to St. Rose Community Church, would he have mentioned you by name as a fellow worker in Christ? Or would your name be left off the list of greetings because you are only known as a spiritual content consumer and a sporadic attender at best? See, it's clear from Paul's letters that That God intends for the mission of God not to be carried out by preachers or professionals, but by every member who leverages their lives to make disciples in the context of the local church. I know many of you would be listed as those who have worked hard and used your unique giftings and callings and seasons of lives and This local fellowship, it's in this context of all of us using our unique stages of life and and giftings. This is what the local church is. I, I want you to look again at the text and just notice how many local churches are present in the greeting. Um, there's the church in, in their house um, in verse 5, and, and Paul sends them greetings, uh, verse 4, from all the churches and the Gentiles who are thankful because at some point in their lives, Apparently, Prisca and Aquila literally risked their lives for Paul. And so he's, he's writing, thanking them. And he says, all the churches that have been influenced by me here are grateful for you and the church you have in your home. But then later on in the text, verse 14, um, he lists a group of names. And then he says, and all the brothers who are with them. So apparently, there's a group of guys leading. I don't know who they were. I don't know if these are elders or deacons or just prominent members, but, but verse 14, greet a syncretist and Phlegon and Hermes and Patrobus and Hermas and the brothers who are with them. 
And then again in verse 15, Greek philologus, I don't know how you say it, yeah, yeah, that's good enough. Julia, uh, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. And then, verse 16, all the churches of Christ greet you. So there's at least three local fellowships mentioned here, and possibly five if he's talking about spiritual families and not physical families when he mentions family of so-and-so and family of so-and-so. So, so truth number three, God gives us local churches to accomplish the work together. These, these local communities of faith were full of people who banded together, and there's a few noteworthy things about these groupings. First, this is sort of a little sub-point here, these churches accomplish the mission in relational unity. So when Paul speaks to them and about them, he uses language like brother, sister, beloved, family, and kinsman. He urges them to greet one another with a holy kiss, which all of us are respectfully disobeying that command uh, this morning. But at the time, this was an affectionate and appropriate greeting for someone signifying very close relationship. These new Christians did not labor alone. They labored according to God's design that Paul gave us in Romans chapter 12, that we are to be like a body of people interconnected to one another and our churches interconnected with other churches doing their part to to see Rome or St. Rose or New Orleans come to faith in Jesus Christ. And and what you realize is that, that this simple greeting, this simple greeting is it's an answer to the prayer of the Lord Jesus in John 17. I mean, we, we, we planned that. It's rigged this morning. Uh, I don't know if you know that, but, but we, we rigged that up to, to what we did was we read John 17, the prayer of Jesus before the sermon, because we want you to see that God is answering that prayer in the context of local churches, even ones in Romans 16. Remember, Jesus prayed in John 17, I do not ask for these only, speaking of the disciples that are right with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. And why? Why, why does he need a united group of, of churches? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Romans 16, St. Rose Community Church, our existence as a unified people is an answered prayer that the Lord Jesus prayed for us. And the stunning thing is not only their unity, it's their unity in spite of diversity. These churches accomplish the mission through diversity. So two blanks there, unity and diversity. In this list of names, Romans 16, there are 18 Greek names, 8 Latin names, 7 people who were probably Jewish, 3 that come from a slave background, 6 who were possibly slaves even at the time of writing. So you've got slave social status and you've got very wealthy business owners. You've got men, you've got women, you've got married people and single people, you've got young people and old people, and these people are coming together with common identities and a common work to do and they actually use their diversity to accomplish the mission take note of verse 13 greet rufus chosen the lord also his mother 
who has been a mother to me as well. What an incredible gift of God that he has graced the church with spiritual mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers. Paul's writing, and, and apparently at some point he has come into contact with Rufus and his mother in his travels, and, and Rufus's mama welcomed him in, and can you imagine, I mean, you've been traveling for a thousand miles on a boat. You, you are tired and stanky, and, and you've not ate a good meal in a long time, and Rufus's mama makes you a home-cooked meal and gives you a bed to sleep in, and Paul says, praise the Lord! <laughs> That, that, that she was like a mother to me in my missionary journeys. I said this last week, and I will say it again this week. Don't waste this season of life that you are in. God has providentially placed you here in this season of your life to be used in the context of a local church in a way that other people cannot be used. He's placed you here as an 80-year-old or as a 20-year-old for such a time as this that you might fit into this unified diversity and play a role. I praise God that I I live far, far away from any blood family. Owen's interaction with his grandparents is, is limited to, to FaceTime. But I praise God that Wayne and Mary Lynn live next door. And that Mr. Wayne went out of his way to, to build for Owen this little play fort. And that Owen came over and his eyes were lit up yesterday. And they killed pretend jaguars for an hour last night. <laughs> That, that is a gift from God in the fellowship of the local church. Wayne and Mary Lynn using their, their current stage of life to be something that our family desperately needs. So don't think that my prime is gone or my prime is not yet to, to, to be here. You will waste the present moment that you can never go back to. God has called you now. For such a time as this. God gives us new identities in Christ. God gives us gospel work to do. God gives us local churches to accomplish the work together. Now there's one more thing that I want you to notice about this whole passage before we, before we close this morning. Um, I chose to structure this morning's points with each point beginning a particular way. I, I chose to structure this morning's points with the phrase, God gives us, as the first phrase of every point. And, and I did so on purpose because I want you to see how all of this is the work of a sovereign God. How he deserves all the credit and the honor and the glory for this. These communities of faith are put together by God. These individuals, their stories, their jobs, their giftings, all of it are a work of God. I'm just going to give you two examples, okay, of how this comes together by the sovereign hand of God working details out for his glory. Consider Prisca and Aquila one more time. At some point, this married couple was displaced from their home. At some point, this married couple underwent extreme suffering and uncertainty. 
where they had to leave the city that they lived in and start over with a new business in a new city, the city of Corinth. And, and I would imagine that that moment was not a joyful one. I would imagine that all the events surrounding that were, were filled with hardship. But at the same time, I asked the question, what if the emperor had not issued that evil decree? What if, what if Priscilla and Aquila had gone on their whole lives and just got richer and richer off of their tent business, never to experience the new identity that Christ offers them? But through the difficult situation of being displaced, they found themselves meeting this guy named Paul and inviting him, who just happened to be a tent maker as well, into their home to join them in the business. And then Paul disciples them, and then they're on the craziest journey of their life, planting churches in pagan Corinth, Ephesus, and Rome. Would they ever have had the joy of being used by God as one of, the, one of the power couples of the first century missionary movement if they had not first gone through the effects of the wicked intentions of a Roman emperor? Perhaps God was sovereign over that. Or consider one more example, one more example. Consider verse, verse 13, back to old Rufus here. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Somehow, some way, Paul's ministered to by these, this family. The father's not mentioned. Perhaps he's, he's passed away at this point. But apparently Rufus' mother has taken him in. But this is not the only time that Rufus' name shows up in the story of the Bible. His name shows up one other time in the Gospels. Well, two other, well, one other time in the Gospels, his name, that was written. This Gospel was likely written from the city of Rome, Gospel of Mark. And Rufus' name shows up. So, so I want you to, to look with me. His name shows up in one of the most important and climactic moments in the whole story of the universe, the Jesus' last steps to the cross. And Rufus' name shows up. Look at Mark chapter 15, verse 17. Now imagine the, the darkness of this moment, and it seems like God's failing. It seems like everything's going wrong. Verse 17. They clothed him in a purple cloak, being Jesus, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So at this point in the process, Jesus has been beaten so badly um, that uh, it, it, it's becoming difficult for him to carry his own cross. He's supposed to carry his own cross to the place of crucifixion, but he had suffered so badly that he is struggling, and the, the Roman soldiers are beginning impatient that it's taking him this long to carry the cross. And so verse 21 tells us, they, being the Roman soldiers, compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So follow with me. Simon of Cyrene, a seemingly random man coming into, the town, into town for some other reason, gets stopped by this brutal parade 
where Jesus is being crucified. He gets grabbed by a Roman soldier, thrown to a task that he did not sign up for, and he's carrying the cross beside a bloodied man as people chant mockery to him. Over the course of that event, Simon, if he was listening, would have heard some things that really would have rocked his world. I mean, when they get to the mount of crucifixion and Jesus is nailed to those beams, Jesus says things like, forgive them, they know not what they do. Jesus says things to a criminal who, had, who, had, who was rightfully being crucified. Jesus says, when he professes faith in Christ, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And I've just got to think that, that Simon had his world rocked that day right? Like what was supposed to be a normal trip into town was no longer a normal trip into town. And, and, and from looking at the biblical witness, I'm thinking the only way Mark knew Simon's name, where he was from, and who his kids were, would be if Simon came to faith in Jesus Christ because of his experience that day. And Simon led his wife to be a believer, and later his children to be believers, who were known in the city of Rome for their labor in the gospel. I think Rufus is Simon of Cyrene's son, 20 to 30 years later, and he's going to help the apostle Paul get the gospel to Spain. God saves his people. And, and sometimes he works through circumstances which seem like the worst possible circumstances, which seems that evil is winning and God is not in control. But yet God, in the midst of the bloody walk to the cross, picks up a guy named Simon, gives him new identity in Christ. So much so that 30 and 40 years later, maybe Spain would get a church <laughs> through the ministry of Simon's wife and his son ministering to Paul. God gives us new identities in Christ. God gives us gospel work to do. God gives us local churches to accomplish the work together. And God brought you here this morning through a series of events, seemingly uncontrolled, seemingly scattered, but yet purposefully. And the question is, will you yield to his will? Will you respond to the invitation of God to join him in the work, to embrace a new identity, to tie yourself with a body of believers who will accomplish the work together. So what I'd like to do this morning is uh, respond in a little bit different of a way. Uh, you should have a little sheet of paper with you um, that was handed to you at some point as you were coming in. And there's some space on that paper for a prayer at the end. And what I'd like for us to do is just, uh, I'd like for us to take a moment to respond in prayer. And if you got a pen or a pencil, I'd like for you to write out a prayer of response to what you're hearing and seeing in God's word. It doesn't have to be elaborate, a sentence or two sentences or three sentences. This is a good practice even in your quiet times with the Lord to, to write out a response to what you're seeing in the word. God help me to do this or see me do this. And there's gonna be a wide variety of responses. God's word is doing a million things in, in the room at the same time. So some of you need to evaluate your lives and ask whether, whether 
you need, want to entrust your soul to Jesus. I mean, some of you need to ask, like, do I even have a new identity in Christ or am I finding it in something else that will fail me? Some of you may just want to praise the Lord for the miraculous gifts we see in his word. Some of you may need to repent of placing identity in the wrong places or some of you need to examine how you've been laboring for the mission in your work, family, and church and you need to repent of working for yourselves rather than for the glory of the Lord. However the Lord is leading us to respond this morning, I want to spend some time in prayer, and um, uh, then Drew's going to lead us uh, in song of response as well. So let me pray, and then we'll have just a couple minutes to write out those prayers, and then we'll sing together. Lord, help us to respond to the scriptures now in prayer. I pray for those sitting before me, those listening online. God, I pray that, that the Spirit of God would bring about the proper responses. Would you stir some to rejoice in thanksgiving, others to repent for their apathy, for their lack of gratefulness, others to come to Jesus and put faith and trust in Him for the very first time, turning away from the sin that enslaves them, and turning to Christ for the freedom that he offers. So Lord, I just pray that you would do all these miracles in our midst as we respond to you now in prayer.